Again, it's good to be with you. We're going to uh, be wrapping up very soon here our series uh, on the stories that Jesus told, the parables. And for the last few weeks in particular, the, the parables have been uh, thematically oriented around characteristics of a disciple. What does a Christian look like? A couple weeks ago, uh, we saw that Christians are supposed to be marked by repentance, by fruit, by growth. Last week, by love for neighbor. And this week, uh, we're going to see that Christians should be marked by mercy. So with that little brief introduction, I'm going to read our text, Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I did not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Now to pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Okay, let's pray together. Jesus, again, we thank you that you're friend enough to sinners to tell us hard things about ourselves. Show us uh, more clearly, Lord, some of those hard things about our own hearts, but also, Lord, show us the good things of yourself and your mercy. And encourage us, we pray. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, the issue for the text, or for the night, is pretty clear from the text. It's that of forgiveness. And it starts when Peter asked Jesus, uh, where's the line in this forgiveness thing, Jesus? I mean, imagine I got some hard-hearted sinner who just uh, likes to poke me in the eye and do it over and over and I forgive him and he just does it again and says, please forgive me. How long does this go on? Mercy is necessary, but where's the line? Where's the line, Jesus? For one man in Texas, the line was right down the middle of his house. I, uh, I read about this story recently. He came home and he and his wife had a fight about sugar, how much money she had spent on sugar. And it dissolved from there into uh, a spat that lasted 40 years, wherein they did not speak to one another. Because they could not forgive one another, because neither one of them could have mercy, because neither one of them refused to step down from demanding their rights. They didn't speak for 40 years. And one day, he sawed the house in half, boarded up the open side, and moved his part of the house to another space. Now, they only had an acre together. So he moved literally his house from here to the other side of the yard. But there they lived, apart, for 40 years. Now, you may think that's ridiculous or I'm making that up. Actually, it is ridiculous and I'm not making it up. 
And when I read about this story, I needed some more detail for telling you. I decided I needed to find out some more detail. So I looked up, man saw his house in half. Three different stories. Of couples just like this. Unable to resolve their sin, their debt. Unable to forgive one another. Holding grudges. Here in America and in Germany and in Cambodia. There's probably more. <laughs> but this is the most sensible thing to do. Cut it in half go our separate ways. How do you explain such insane, heartbreaking behavior? Well, it's an extreme example. And yet I think if we look deep in our hearts and we look around us, we'll see a general, a general pattern. It's pretty clear. We think we deserve mercy. We don't deserve it. But we certainly give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. And we want other people to give us the benefit of the doubt. Meanwhile, as it regards other people's sin, we like to stand on our rights and demand that they give us what we deserve. You need to tell me that you're wrong. Meanwhile, I shouldn't have to tell you I'm wrong. Can't you just be nice to me? I was just a little bit off today. Uh, and, and this is a great problem. And um, it's one of the reasons why, I would say, even objective observers would say, Christians are very judgmental. They're right. We're supposedly people that have received great mercy and grace, and yet we have a hard time forgiving others. People in our family, our friends, and certainly people not like us. So that's the problem we're going to see in our text tonight. Uh, both a solution and a bit of a problem. It cuts both ways. This is a parable both of grace and of judgment. That, that because Jesus is merciful and forgiving, we must be forgiving as well. We must forgive others. And the parable is all about forgiveness. And so when I was thinking of how to structure this thing, I couldn't get away from forgiveness. So we're going to look at what it means to be forgiven. We're going to look at what it means to be unforgiving. And lastly, we're going to see that the forgiven forgive. Got all that? No, you don't. So we're going to look at what it means to be forgiven, what it means to not be forgiving, the dynamics of an unforgiving heart. And lastly, we see that the forgiven are people that forgive. So what Jesus is doing here, and we see this at the beginning in uh, verse 23, is he's describing the way things should be in the kingdom. This is the way Jesus came to make things. This is the way I am. Me and my followers will be like this. Whatever this is, he describes it in the parable. And what he's going to describe is that we're supposed to be merciful, that we should be marked by forgiveness. And our story starts off in a very interesting way. Uh, there's a king, and he calls everyone in to settle their accounts. And all his servants, and the word here is servant or slave, uh, it can mean anything from a menial servant that cleans feet to someone with great managerial authority, a tax collector. And in this one particular fellow we encounter in verses 23, 24, 25 uh, has a particular problem. He has great debt. Tremendous debt. The amount of 10,000 talents was about 204 metric tons of whatever precious metal of the coinage of the day. Uh, given a denarius was a day's wage, he would have required 164,000 years to pay off his debt. So we're speaking potentially hyperbolically. This may be Jesus is stressing a point here, and we'll see what that is. Uh, but this was certainly an insurmountable amount of debt that could never, ever be repaid. This could not be repaid. So much so that uh, the text doesn't even give it a thought. Uh, the king just says, you can't pay it. It's over with. And decides to sell the guy and his family and recover his losses. Now he would never recover his losses. Actually, the best he could have got for selling the slave would have been about 2,000 denarii, about three years' labor. So the king was going to eat 
164,997 years of wealth and get almost nothing out of it. But there was nothing else to be done. That's what was going to happen. Supposedly, uh, he was going to repay. There's no way for him to pay. The payment would have been his life. His life would have been over. That of his family as well. Uh, There's no way to recover all this. And we're not just talking about money here. The issue really is sin. Uh, That's what Peter brings up in verse 21. How many times will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? This parable is about sin. And Jesus is saying, your sin is an insurmountable debt. You can't count it. And you certainly can't pay it off. That's what we're talking about here. So that's the problem. The insurmountable debt of our sin that we simply cannot repay. We can barely fathom. But we also see uh, here a solution. And the solution is mercy. This man who had accrued such debt uh, falls and does anything he can. He begs for mercy. In verse 26, he fell on his knees and implored him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. It's very interesting. I'm not quite sure whether this is insane or sane. The only thing he can really do is plead for mercy, so it's sort of sane. But the promise that he'll repay is insane. There's, there's simply no way. You're just never going to repay this. But in desperation, he just says whatever. And shockingly, surprisingly, the king has mercy. The king sees something the servant can't possibly see. He sees through this flimsy promise who knows this guy will never repay? It's impossible to repay. Uh, he sees through it. He sees through the ledger books. He sees through the accounting. He sees through the drastic loss. And he has pity. The word is compassion. He sees before him a human, a life, no, wife, the life of his wife and kids. And for some reason, deep inside, the king decides to forgive it all. And to have mercy, in this case, in all cases, involves forgiveness. He forgives the debt means he assumes it himself. He bears the loss himself. It's a remarkable loss he eats. He surrenders when he had every right to do so as king. He surrenders the right to demand repayment and assumes all the cost himself. And this is the picture of grace. This is what Jesus does for people that believe in him. This is what this parable is about. At least the first part of it. That we come to God as people with insurmountable debt no way to pay back what we owe. And we offer up flimsy excuses and we promise to do better. And God sees through all the flimsy excuses and the weak, half-hearted trying. He sees our weakness. And we, with our accounting book, rapidly trying to do the math, figuring we can repay it. God knows it can never be paid. He doesn't even see the accounting book. For some reason, he sees us. If you trust in Jesus, he doesn't see your debt. He doesn't just forgive your your debt. He gives you the righteousness of Jesus. You're clothed in riches. It's a picture of grace. It's a picture of mercy. Have you moved beyond simply understanding that in your head? And do you know it as an existential, experiential reality in your heart? Do you know, I'm walking out of here scot-free from the burden of debt, of guilt and shame. Or on a daily basis, are you walking around living like you're just barely scraping by? People that live in tremendous debt live looking over their shoulder all the time. The phone rings, hang up the phone. Who's at the door? Is the collector? Squeezing the life out of other people because you're trying to meet your own needs. Is that you? Or do you have you realized? Do you know? Have you admitted? I don't want this to have a little problem. I don't just 
not quite have my act together. I have an overwhelming amount of debt. I am utterly bankrupt. I've got no game left to play except for have mercy on me. Well, this man is forgiven. The king is gracious. He's compassionate. He takes the debt on himself. And then uh, something troubling happens. And we see it coming in verse 28. This is where, if this is a movie, the music changes. The word but. What do you mean but? This is a happy story. Not anymore. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. And we see that this one who's been forgiven is unforgiving. What's the problem? The problem is that someone owes him something. A fellow servant owes him a hundred denarii. It's about three months' pay. And uh, this fellow servant falls down and pleads, Have patience with me, I will repay you. That sounds familiar. Didn't I just say that a couple hours ago? And yet, his plea falls on deaf ears. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Uh, this man, recently forgiven, unlike the king, who was gracious, decides instead, and he's within his legal rights, I demand my rights. I want what's mine. Give me what's mine. By the strict letter of the law, he's completely just. He has every right to demand what he, what he deserves. But, which is obviously wrong, he demands what he wants because I assume he can imagine what it's like to be completely free. Seems to me that he's still living like a debtor. I've got to make this up. I've got to do this. I'm not sure he's even heard the words of mercy and fully comprehend what it means to walk out of the king's chamber, scot-free, with life before him. And then walk up to a fellow servant and choke him and demand your money. Um, he's standing on his rights. He lacks compassion. He's still living by the book. He sees everyone around him as someone that owes or has, but not as people. People in need. People in need of mercy. So what's the problem behind uh, this man? The problem is his sin. Sin is two things. There's at least two aspects of sin in this text. One is the insurmountable debt of sin. We just can't account for it. It's more than we can imagine. Sin is also blinding. It's deceiving. And this man is blind. Deceived. He can't see uh, what mercy looks like. He can't see the discrepancy between having received mercy and the fact that he can't treat others with mercy. He can't see the discrepancy be- between how he's been treated and how he's treating others. Fortunately, everybody else can see it. Fellow servants see it in verse 31. Fellow servants see it, they're greatly distressed. But we, sometimes, we're blind. We, we see other people very well. We seldom see ourselves well. Sin blinds us the reality that we often live like debtors. We're often keeping the books on others. We're terrible at forgiving others. Actually, what we're good at is judging others. Well, that's not all the bad news. Uh, the bad news is, uh, you know, it gets worse. That the king finally hears of this in verse 34 and drags him back into the chambers and says in verse 32, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy of your servant also? He delivered him to the jailers. The final word here is judgment. It's judgment on those who show a lack of comprehension for mercy. And they show their lack of comprehension by not being merciful. You never figured out this mercy thing. I set you free and you lived like a pauper and demanded out of others. The final note of word, the final word here for this man is judgment. And that's very upsetting. It's very troubling for lots of us. We don't like the reality of judgment or even the theory of judgment. And yet there's a sense in which we do see what's going on here. Even these 
somewhat disinterested, ob- objective fellow servants see what's going on. They see the unjust nature of what's happening. You were treated with mercy, and you're not being merciful. That's wrong. They recognize it's not wrong. We recognize that too. In this sense, judgment is right. It's good. Moreover, in this passage, this is a king. You want your king to be just. You want your king to be good. And how is it the case that we can live in a society or in a world or in a kingdom that's good and safe and kind and merciful and loving if God or Jesus doesn't have the right to punish hard-hearted people? So justice, judgment, it's not all bad. And in Jesus and in the gospel, there's a way in which justice and mercy meet and reconcile. Well, I think you, I at least want you to see that it's possible that you can know quite a bit about mercy and God's justice and grace and yet live in a very unforgiving manner. This man doesn't. Jesus is telling Peter, that's what's the reality. The reality, Peter, is you're going to follow me around and hear the gospel and hear all these things and hear about God's grace, and yet you're trying to set a limit on how much you can forgive others. You're trying to draw a line. What I want you to know is you can't draw a line. You can't do it. We're really good at standing on our rights. In fact, as Americans, no one's better. We demand our rights. We we protect them fiercely. I want to help you maybe examine your own heart on how this is working out and the way you treat others and maybe how you're being an unforgiving person and showing that you don't understand mercy. Are you punishing someone right now? Is there someone in your life that you're punishing? You may not be cognizant of it, but think maybe along these lines. Are you resentful? The word resent is very interesting. It means resentiment. Who are you reharboring the feelings over and over again? That bitterness. You actually enjoy it. Like, man, I hated that person. Ooh, ooh, I hate him again. It's good. I mean, I can't believe they did it to me. And you keep playing it over and over because it makes you feel good to hate them, to despise them, to grind them because they deserve it. You're exercising your right to judge them. Is there someone like that right now that you're just angry at? You resent them? Or is there someone that you think of them, you see them, and you, and you just think, they need to learn a lesson. They need to grow up. I'm not going to support their irresponsibility anymore. And so you withhold your affection, you withhold your word, you withhold your support, you withhold your love. You're just hard toward them. Is there someone like that in your life? Is there someone that you need to forgive? Some of you, there may be, you, you just know it. It's a family member. It's a mom. It's a dad. It's a brother. For some reason, there's been animosity, enmity, silence. Some of you, you guys have experienced, I'm just looking at the room, I mean, people here. Some of you have been abused emotionally, physically. I'm not saying forgiveness is wiping us under the carpet. To be dealt with, needs to be treated seriously. But are you living daily under the weight and guilt and power of resentment and bitterness? Do you need to consider what it looks like to forgive this person and be free from it? Some of you may have been hurt by the church. Things went wrong in the church, your parents were treated unjustly. You've had a hard time ever taking the church seriously. It's a messed up, screwed up institution that's hurt me. But you need to forgive. Who are you not forgiving? 
because you're standing on your rights? Are you marked by your grudges? Are you marked by the freedom of someone who's received mercy? It's had all their debt paid. So we've seen uh, one who's been forgiven. We've seen the same person be unforgiving. And what Jesus is saying in this parable is that the forgiven need to forgive. Those who are forgiven need to forgive. It's a necessity. They must do so. Verse 33 and verse 35, the king basically saying, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? I think the logic's simple. I treated you with grace and mercy, aboundingly so. Can't you treat others mercifully? Shouldn't you do the same? I think we understand the logic. The question is, where do you get the resources? How is it possible? How do I do this? How do I do this on a a regular basis when people hurt me or let me down or don't give me the respect I deserve, don't show the value that I'm worth? How do do I do this? Where do I get the resources? Well, first thing, it's in response. It's in response to God's great mercy. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? I have been merciful to you. You didn't deserve it. Stop deluding yourself. It was free. It was gracious. It was wonderful. You were going to die in prison. Locked up forever. Your life was over. I forgave it all. I bore it all. I was gracious to you. If that does not elicit a response in your heart, then you don't understand the mercy. If that does not move you into a place of freedom where you can stop taking yourself and your rights so seriously, then you don't get the mercy. You don't understand it. It may be a conceptual reality, but it's not a heart reality. And you're going to continue to live as a pauper trying to squeeze life and justification and vindication out of other people. Give me what I deserve. Make me feel vindicated. Perform for me. Instead of being merciful, like your Father who's merciful. So the first thing is a response. Respond to the mercy by being merciful. The second is a reflection. How is it possible to be forgiven? You reflect your Father. Jesus didn't just pay a great debt to put you at zero and send you into the world. He made a great debt to bring you into the family. So also my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's a, it's a verse of judgment. But also look at the language. Father, brother, you've been brought into a family. God is at work making you into the family image. If you don't bear the family image of mercy and forgiveness, something's wrong. You're living like an orphan. See the mercy. Respond to it. Become like Jesus in your mercy. In Victor Hugo's uh, wonderful book, Le Miserable, we uh, encounter Jean Valjean early in the book. He's recently been released from prison. He was in prison for stealing bread, spent 19 years there, I believe, and was marked by his imprisonment in lots of ways. First, literally, with a stamp, his prison number. Anyone know it? Nine Yeah, I knew it. I knew it was the old one part. Um, you listen to the soundtrack too many times, Stephen. Um, but also in his character and his bearing, he looks like a criminal, he acted like a criminal, he was suspicious like a criminal. Much of his life is now over, I mean, it seemed. What was he able to do? He'd been out for three days, unable to find a place to stay, unable to find work of any sort. He had nowhere to start. Life was before him, and yet there was no life to live. When a bishop uh, kindly opened his house, extended hospitality, fed him a meal, gave him a bed, in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean woke up, sneaked into the dining room, stole some silver, and made his way out of the house. The next morning, the bishop is greeted uh, by Jean Valjean and a number of uh, fine, upstanding soldiers uh, who had caught this renegade with the silver and brought him back to stand before his accuser. 
And they were shocked, the guards were, as was Jean Valjean, to hear the bishop say, Oh, Jean Valjean, you're back. You're here. I'm delighted to see you. Did you forget to take the candlesticks as well? They're worth 200 francs. And in explaining to the guards, oh, see, I gave all this stuff to him. I gave it to him. They were shocked. They were dumbfounded. They left. And Jean Valjean, standing before this merciful bishop, utterly astounded, unable to say anything, the bishop draws him close and says to him, Jean Valjean, don't forget. Don't ever forget that you have promised that you're going to take these resources, this money, this mercy, and you're going to become a better man. And what you see in the book is that having received this bountiful mercy from this man at great cost to himself, Jean Valjean becomes like the man. He becomes like the bishop. Marked by mercy, he becomes a man of mercy. Freed from debt, freed from imprisonment, he becomes merciful. You've been forgiven, if you trust in Jesus, an insurmountable debt. Something you can never pay off. You can't begin to calculate the cost. The best way to calculate the cost is to realize God's Son had to die for it. That's how bad it is. Yet, knowing that, you can still be unforgiving. We do it daily. Not treating people mercifully, compassionately, instead of standing on our rights. What is able to move you beyond standing on your rights, to embrace people, to love them, Treat them mercifully. It's when you respond in grace to the great mercy of God. And you grow more like Jesus over time as you reflect on what Jesus has done for you. In the movie The Straight Story, we encounter a man named Alvin Straight. Alvin Straight was an elderly fellow living with his daughter when he learned that his estranged brother, Lyle, had suffered a stroke. They hadn't spoken for years. They had been close as children. Something had come between them. Alvin makes up his mind that he has to go visit his brother. The problem is that Alvin, being quite old in age, is not able to walk very well. He uses two canes, and he can't see very well either. So he can't drive, and he has no resources. So being a rather poor rural fellow, he hatches a plan. He, he makes a wagon, puts his necessities in it, and hooks it to his recently purchased 30-year-old John Deere lawn tractor and begins the 240-mile drive from rural Iowa to the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin. It's a great movie. You see all the adventures and perils and wonderful conversations that Alvin encounters. At the end of the story, and the whole reason for his travels is to encounter his brother Lyle. At the end of the story, he's standing before Lyle's dilapidated abandoned, seemingly cottage falling apart, much like their relationship had. And you see on his face uh, the question, wondering, is my brother alive or dead? Couldn't possibly tell from this house. And he he calls out, Lyle! And spoken to his brother in 30 years. Hearing no response, you see him ask again, Lyle? Has my trip been in vain? His brother Lyle, not having heard his voice in 30 years, says, Alvin, is that you? He makes his way onto the front porch. 30 years of animosity between them. They don't know what to say to one another. Two old men, one holding himself up with a walking cane, two walking canes, the other guy is almost in a wheelchair. They just sort of stare at each other for a while. They don't know what to say. And Lyle says, Alvin, sit down. 
And sort of overcome, he just sort of starts looking around and he notices the tractor. This strange lawnmower thing with a wagon on the back. He said, did, did you come all the way out here on that for me? Friends, Jesus has made that costly journey for you. He, he's, he's done it all the way. He didn't start a trip and not finish it. Something actually less, far less glorious than a John Deere lawnmower. <laughs> he did it on a cross. He came all the way to you. He paid all your debt. If you're here tonight as someone who's not at all sure about this Christianity stuff, I just want you to know that what I've said tonight is the heart of the message. It's the heart of Christianity. Your sin's reality. God's mercy is a greater one. It's yours to embrace. And if you're a Christian, I want to challenge you. Remember. Remember the great mercy of Jesus. And be like him.